The Road Less Travelled podcast is a proudly Australian, fiercely independent podcast, hosted and produced by me, Nikki Shea, for Fat Cat Media. We receive no corporate payments, which means we rely on self-sufficient financial support. If you can and are able to, we would love you to support us via Patreon. Listen to the Road Less Travel podcast on Google Podcasts, Spotify, Apple Podcasts and iHeartRadio. And now it's time for this week's show. G'day everyone, welcome to the Road Less Travel podcast. My name is Nikki Shea and it's great to be back with you this week. I thought we'd talk a little bit about the country in which we live, Australia. How did it actually get its name? Well, did you know that on the 21st of September 1817, in an official dispatch, the then Governor Lachlan Macquarie advocates the adoption of the name Australia for the continent as suggested by explorer Matthew Flinders. Australia was previously named New Holland by the Dutch sea explorers who landed on the west coast in the early 1600s. James Cook claimed the eastern coast of the continent for England in 1770, naming it New South Wales. After the first fleet arrived in Australia in 1788, Captain Arthur Phillip was given orders to extend the claim further west. Thus, the western half of the continent continued to be known as New Holland and the eastern half was New South Wales. Matthew Flinders became the first explorer to circumnavigate the entire continent, doing so between 1801 and 1803. After being wrongly imprisoned by the French for seven years, accused of being a spy, Flinders returned to England, and in 1810 he wrote an account of his expeditions known as A Voyage of Terra Australis. It was in this account that Flinders proposed the name Terra Australis, or Australia, to be adopted for the southern continent. There were so many supporters of his proposal in England, but wealthy sponsor Sir Joseph Banks did not support his suggestion. Flinders died before the new name of the continent could be decided upon. It was left to Governor Lachlan Macquarie, who was impressed by Flinders' arguments and advocated that the name Australia be adopted and began to use this term regularly. In an official dispatch dated the 21st of September 1817, Macquarie stated the following, I hope Australia will be the name given to this country in future instead of the very erroneous and misapplied name given to it of New Holland which, properly speaking, only applies to a part of this immense continent. So thus Australia was born. And speaking of Matthew Flinders, his name is synonymous with Australia, and as a kid growing up during schooling, we studied the Australian explorers, and Flinders was one that stuck out for me. And you can actually walk the Matthew Flinders Trail from his landing spot at Dramana in Victoria, which is near Codrington Street and Port Nepean Road, just out of Melbourne in Victoria. Following the Bay Trail southwest along the Two Bays walking track at its start at Dramana Boat Ramp, across the Matthew Flinders Bridge to the Flinders Cairn on Arthur's Seat, this retraces the approximate path he took on the 27th of April 1802. Unknown to Flinders at the time, John Murray had already entered Port Phillip Bay ten weeks before the ship Lady Nelson and named it Port King after the then Governor King. King renamed it Port Phillip in 1805 after Governor Arthur Phillip. Murray had named Arthur's seat as it resembled the hill of the same name near his hometown of Edinburgh in Scotland. Flinders only stayed in the bay for a short time, enough to cross the bay and climb the highest hill in the Yuyangs, which he named Station Peak, which was later changed to Flinders Peak. And we know that Flinders was apparently the first to use the name Terra Australis for this island continent, recommended the Australian name in his later report, 
his voyage when it was later named the name was later adopted at Federation. So from almost the southern tip of Australia in Melbourne, we head up now to the northwest coast of Western Australia, or rather the coast of Western Australia, it's not really the northwest. The HMS Investigator anchors are the two anchors that jetsoned from HMS Investigator on the morning of Saturday the 21st of May 1803 by her commander Matthew Flinders. This was an order to avoid running aground on the Middle Island on the Archipelago of Ely Church on the southern coast of New Holland, which we now know as Western Australia. In 1973, the anchors were located and recovered by members of the Underwater Explorers Club of South Australia. The recovered anchors became the subject of an ownership dispute between various governments, particularly those of South Australia and Western Australia, due to the historic significance as artefacts of a major voyage of a European explorer. A European explorer rather. The dispute was resolved with the ownership of the anchors going to the Australian government, who then subsequently gifted one of the anchors to the South Australian government. The pair of artefacts is also known as Flinders Anchors. I'll put them up on our Facebook page as well, HMS Investigators Dream Anchor at the National Museum in Canberra. The size is it's about 62 inches, 98 inches high. It has a depth of 12 inches and it's about 400 kilograms, I say 400 kilometers, 400 kilograms in weight and was discovered in 1973 in WA. The outfitting of HMS Investigator in early 1801 prior to her departure from the United Kingdom for Terra Australis, it included five bower, two stream and two kedge anchors. An additional bower anchor was included in stores sent to Port Jackson. HMS Investigator departed Kupang in Timor on the 8th of April 1803 to sail to Port Jackson, where she arrived on the 9th of June in 1803. The object of the voyage was to seek medical aid for the members of the crew who were suffering from dysentery and fever and to seek repairs to the sloop. Now, Flinders' intention was to stop a day or two, in his words, at the Archipelago of Richerti on the purposes of procuring geese for our sick people, seal oil for our lambs and a few casks of salt from the lake on Middle Island. HMS Investigator arrived on the evening of the 17th of May 1803 and anchored on the north side of Middle Island between the island's northeast point and Goose Island in the area known as Goose Island Bay. The visit to Middle Island also allowed the burial of the sloop's boatswain, which was Charles Douglas, who died on the 18th of May 1803, to take place on dry land. Flinders discovered on departure during the morning of Saturday the 21st of May 1803 that HMS investigator was in danger of being driven aground on Middle Island by a freshening breeze before the sails could actually be loosened. This danger was mitigated by using the sloop's spare anchors to hold it in place. However, Flinders needed to abandon the best bower anchor to, and a stream anchor and a quantity of cable in order to safely depart from the bay. Now, instead of recovering the two anchors, HMS Investigator continued towards Port Jackson with the intention of retrieving these at a later time. Doug Seaton, who was an information officer at the South Australian Museum, found out the, about the loss of anchors in 1969 during a, cons, uh, con, uh, during a conversation rather, with Robert Sexton, who was a friend and a well-known South Australian maritime historian. Seaton then commenced a four-day desktop study to identify the likely area in which the anchors could be found. In 1972, Seaton, a scuba diving enthusiast, planned an expedition to find and recover the anchors with the assistance of the following fellow members, Terry and Helen Drew, Peter and Rosalie Koch, John Summers and the following residents of Esperance, Don Galvin, 
Don McKenzie, Tony Moore of Cape, Apri- Cape Arid Farm, and with the support of the following sponsors being BP, a boating business known as Lawton Agencies, and the Australian newspaper, the Sunday Mail. The expedition departed Adelaide on the 26th of December 1972 for Esperance. Now, later that day, the expedition was postponed due to a vehicle accident north of Port Wakefield, which resulted in Terry and Helen Drew being hospitalised, their vehicle being destroyed, their boat being damaged, and the two occupants of the other vehicle unfortunately being killed. Terry and Helen Drew would later rejoin the expedition to witness the recovery of both anchors. The expedition resumed and arrived at Middle Island on the 4th of January 1973. After a week of rough weather, the search commenced on the 11th of January using a manta board constructed from driftwood and other materials. The best bower anchor was discovered by Peter Koch in 15 metres or 49 feet of deep water on the 14th of January. After reviewing his desktop research, Seaton then reorganised the search and found the stream anchor about 9 metres or 30 feet away from the best bower anchor several hours later, and the news of the discovery was announced on the 15th of January. Now, as was pre-arranged with the then Commonwealth Department of Shipping and Transport, the lighthouse supply tender NV Cape Don arrived on the 19th of January to lift both anchors off the seabed and conveyed them to Fremantle for conservation. As soon as the news of the discovery of the two ankles were announced, a dispute erupted over who was the actual owner of these artefacts. The protagonists at the time were the governments of Australia, South Australia and Western Australia. The Australian government argued that it was the national interest for it to own the anchors. South Australia then argued the significance of the anchors as part of the sloop that charted most of its coastline, while Western Australia argued that the anchors were found in its waters. The dispute was eventually resolved when the Australian Government took ownership of both anchors in April 1973, with the best bower anchor being subsequently gifted to South Australia. In 1974, after completion of the conservation process at the WA Museum, the anchors were handed over to the Australian Government, and the best bower anchor was officially presented to the South Australian Government on the 1st of March 1974 and was immediately placed on display at the Art Gallery of South Australia. In 1986, it was transferred to the collection of the then newly created South Australian Maritime Museum Museum in Port Adelaide. The stream anchor was retained by the Australian Government for the possible inclusion in the collection of a proposed National Transport Museum, and this anchor was subsequently added to the collection of the National Museum of Australia in Canberra, and that's where you can still see it today. It's awesome to look at. Got some photos that will whack up on our Facebook page too. Matthew Flinders, as we know, was the first to chart the then uncompleted coastline of South Australia and used the name Australia for the continent. The anchor is one of the few remaining physical relics linked to Flinders' exploration of the southern coastline, one of the earliest relics of European presence in South Australia. And I guess, too, it just highlights one of the important voyages of discovery and, again, the naming of Australia by Matthew Flinders. He uh, circumnavigated Australia and confirmed its island status after many years of conjecture and uncertainty. So... Matthew Flynn is certainly not to be misplaced in uh, the discovery of Australia, the, I guess, the cataloguing of um, Australia's circumnavigation that he did as well. Um, a, a terrific um, early explorer of Australia's coastline, maritime exploration. And when you think of some some of the places named um, with the name Flinders in them, Matthew Flinders actually named no place on the continent of Australia after himself. Flinders Island on the west coast of South Australia was named after his brother Samuel Flinders, who was the second lieutenant on board the ship Investigator. 
The Flinders Rangers were named such by Governor Gawler in a letter in July 1839, which was published um, in this le- and in this letter, Gawler described the work of the explorer Edward Eyre and advised he had named the mountain of rangers known as the Flinders Rangers. And Matthew Flinders himself only named Mount Brown after his botanist Robert Brown, and Mount Arden after his great gran- after his great grandmother. Further south, he named Mount Lofty, sighted from Kangaroo Head on Kangaroo Island, part of the range of the hills now known as the Mount Lofty Ranges or the Adelaide Hills. And many places have subsequently been named after him, including Flinders Street, Flinders Park. Uh, there's a suburb in Adelaide after Flinders, Flinders University of South Australia, Flinders Chase Conservation Park and Kangaroo Island, to name such a few. So Flinders himself didn't name anything after himself. That was later on down the track. And we must, speaking of Matthew Flinders, he actually didn't, well, he's he's the first, um, first backtrack, English navigator, cartographer, which was a map writer, uh, map designer, map um, mapping expert. He led to the first inshore circumnavigation of the land, land mass as we now know it as Australia. Um, and he and George Bass actually realised that um, Terra Australis was part of Van Diemen's Land, Tasmania. So that's how he did. So, and we know that George Bass confirmed that Van Diemen's Land wasn't indeed an island. So Matthew Flinders, uh, when he after he come back from his um, travel around Australia, then he was obviously um, captured by the French as they thought he was a spy, and he put all this down in Terra Australis. His Flinders' health actually suffered, and when he returned to Australia, to Australia. When he returned to England in 1810, he actually did not live to see the success of his widely praised book, An Atlas, A Voyage to Terra Australis. He actually died because of uh, kidney failure. So and it was quite ironic. When I was driving from um, West Australia to Victoria to relocate, um, on the day that I was driving into South Australia, it was unbelievably hot, and in the distance was the Flinders Ranges, and I saw... Mount Brandon, as I was kind of, it's rather ironic, in that very year, 2019, was the year that uh, Flinders' grave was rediscovered after it had been lost. Let's talk a little bit about that. So Flinders, as I said, was in poor health when he returned. He died at the age of 40 on the 19th of July, 1840, from kidney disease in his London home, which was, uh, it was in London Street. That street was later renamed Maple Street and it was now the site of the BT Tower. This was on the day after the book and Atlas was published, and Flinders never saw the completed work as he was unconscious by that time, but his wife arranged that the volumes on his bed covers so that he could actually touch them. On July 13, uh, July 23, rather, he was interred in the burial grounds of St James's Church in Piccadilly, which was located some distance from the church beside Hampstead Road in Camden in London. The burial ground was in use from 1790 until 1853. By 1852, the location of the grave had been forgotten due to alterations to the burial ground. In 1878, the cemetery became St James's Gardens, Camden, with only a few gravestones lining the edges of the park. Part of the gardens located between Hampstead Road and Eustace Rail St- Railway Station was built over when Eust- Euston Station was expanded and Flinders' grave was thought to possibly lie under the station platform. The gardens were closed to the public in 2017 for work on the high-speed 2 HS2 rail project, which requires the expansion of Eustace Station. The grave was located on January, tw- uh, January 2019 by archaeologists. His coffin was identified by its well-preserved lead coffin plate, 
and film of the discovery and the exhumation was shown in a documentary on TV in September 2020. It was proposed to rebury his remains at a site to be decided after they'd been examined by osteoarchaeologists. Following the discovery of his grave, the parish church of Donington in Lincolnshire, which was Flinders' birthplace, saw a huge surge of visitors. The Matthew Flinders Bring Him Home group and the Britain Australia Society, as well as Flinders' direct descendants, all campaigned to have his remains interred at the Church of St Mary in the Holywood in Donington. On the 17th of October 2019, HS2 Limited announced that Flinders' remains would be reinterred in the Church of Donington where he was baptised and permission was given by the Diocese of Lincoln for reburial in the North Isle. So there you go. He was actually able to be reburied and uh, as a massive... um, a massive name in Australia when you know the name Matthew Flinders and it was, I guess, fitting as I was driving past the Flinders Range and saw Mount Brown and the, the, the news actually came on that they'd found his grave. I was like, whoa, someone that I had admired as much as uh, Charles Sturt, Matthew Flinders was another one because he did all his exploration at sea. Um, so, yeah, Matthew Flinders. But jump onto Google, you can Google his name and the, the places that he explored and his um, circumnavigation of Australia and other sea voyages that he did as well. It's uh, absolutely phenomenal um, surveying the southern coast, um, the circumnavigation of Australia. He's just, when he tried to return back to England in his imprisonment, um, just uh, yeah, didn't do it very easily, uh, not by today's standards at all. And just the way that he mapped out um, and the names as well that, um, you know, Bass and Flinders Point at Cronulla in New South Wales, named of him. There's a statue of Flinders along the North Terrace in Adelaide at St Paul's Cathedral in in, in Melbourne. Um, he was even on the ten shilling note um, between I think sixty one and sixty five in Australia. So yeah, he's um, certainly a, a place uh, a place in Australian history that is uh, unquestioned whatsoever. So that's the story of well, not really the story, but a little bit about Matthew Flinders, and someone's going to ask me what happened about his ship, the HMS Investigator. Well, the HMS Investigator was launched in 1795, which the Royal Navy purchased it in 1798, renamed the boat HMS Xenophon, and then in 1801 converted it to a survey ship under the name HMS Investigator. In 1802, under the command of Flinders, she was the, she was the first ship to circumnavigate Australia, the Navy sold her in 1810 and she returned to mercantile service under the name Xenophon. She was probably broken up, they record say, in 1872, as I just whipped through here. Her final voyage occurred in 1853 when she put into the Australian port of Geelong on the 30th of July with a cargo of timber and other goods. Xenophon later continued on to Melbourne where she was sold, converted to storage hulk, and then was she was re-registered in Melbourne in 1861. A further change of ownership occurred in 1868 and the register was closed in 1872 with the simple comments broken up. So certainly had a long career, um, HMS Investigator, as we know, went right around Australia, um, all over the world. And the Australian uh, voyage, at the urging of the naturalist Sir Joseph Banks, the Admiralty decided to launch an expedition to map the Australian coastline as well as further study the plant animal life on the new colony. Attached to this expedition was the botanist Robert Brown, the botanical artist Ferdinand Bauer and the landscape artist William Westall. The Admiralty chose Xenophon for the expedition. Her former mercantile role meant that she had a small draft and ample space for supplies, making her particularly suitable for a long exploration voyage. 
On the other hand, she was in relatively poor condition then and could therefore be spared from service in the war against France. The Navy had X-1 fitted out as a discovery ship in Sheerness between November 1800 and March 1801, and that's when they renamed her Investigator. The refitting included making additional cabins for scientists and space on the deck for plant specimens. The armament was reduced to two guns and eight carronades, which are six 12-pounder and two 18-pounders, providing additional storage space. And on the 19th of January 1801, the Navy appointed Lieutenant Flinders commander of the investigator and he would arrive to take command on the 25th of January. He wrote, the investigator was a North Country built ship of 334 tonnes and in form nearly resembled the description of a vessel recommended by Captain Cook as best calculated for voyages of discovery. She had been purchased some years before into His Majesty's service and having been newly coppered and repaired, was considered to be the best vessel which could at that time be spared for the projected voyage to Terra Australis. And those words directly from Matthew Flinders in Book 1, Chapter 1 of A Voyage to Terra Australis. And you can still get that book. And if, you have a, if you're a bit of a nerd like me, have a read of it. It's an awesome book. You know, it tells you all about uh, how it sailed from Spithead for Australia. Um, they called in at the Cape of Good Hope before crossing the Indian Ocean. Uh, they sighted Cape Lewin off southwest Australia in uh, December. Uh, then they then put into King George Sound in Albany for a month before running a, a survey of the Great Australian Bight, which stretched uh, 2,300 kilometres to the Spencer Gulf in South Australia. Um, then they they named Cape Catastrophe um, after a tragic accident where the shore party, which included the ship's master, John Thistle, a midshipman, Wyndham Pia, and six seamen, they were lost when a boat capsized. Uh, att- attempting to return to the ship at dusk in choppy waters. They didn't find any of the bodies, and the area which he had anchored, he named that two memory coves, so Cape Catastrophe Memory Cove, names of which were synonymous of events that happened. Proceeding into the Gulf of the Spencer Gulf, he surveyed Port Lincoln, which he named after his hometown. He then charted Kangaroo Island, York Peninsula, St Vincent Gulf, uh, then he went to Encounter Bay. A surprise meeting with the Geograph under Nicholas Bolden was cordial. Uh, the two navigators, being unaware of the Treaty of, of Amiens, had only just been signed and both believed that the two countries were still at war at the time with one another. Then he sailed westward through Bass Strait. Uh, investigator named, uh, visited and named King Island and Port Phillip before arriving at Port Jackson in 1802. Our investigator then spent the next 10 weeks preparing and took aboard 12 new men, including an Aboriginal man named Bungeree with whom Flinders had previously sailed on the sloop Norfolk with. They left Port Jackson. They went north uh, in the company of the brig, the Lady Nelson. She sailed poorly after losing her keels and Flinders ordered her back to Port Jackson. Hugging the east coast, they passed through the Great Barrier Reef and transited Torres Strait, which Flinders had previously sailed with Captain William Bly on the HMS Providence. When she was surveying the Gulf and Carpentaria, the ship's timbers were examined and the dockyard refit conversion had failed to rectify and fix major faults with the ship and the voyage to Australia had, that the voyage to Australia had revealed. She was in poor shape. The wood was rotting and there were serious extensive leaks. The ship's carpenter reported that she would not last more than six months. He then sailed to the Dutch settlement in Timor, hoping to find a replacement. He was unsuccessful, and by now a number of the crew were unwell with numerous diseases such as dysentery and scurvy. So Flinders then had to reluctantly cut short the survey, headed back to Port Jackson with all possible sail day and night, he wrote, to undergo repairs. This meant that abandoning his desire for a running survey on the north and west coast of Australia. 
He did, though, however, complete the circumnavigation of Australia, but not without lightening the ship by jetsoning those two wrought iron anchors, as we spoke of, which were found back in 1973. So um, this is what uh, Governor Philip Gid Gidme, he requested that a survey of the vessel be uh, carried out after they returned to Port Jackson in Sydney. He said, being the state... Um, being the state of the investigator thus far, we think it altogether unnecessary to make any further examination, being unanimously of opinion that she is not worth repairing in any country and that it is impossible in this country to put her in a state fit for seeing going. That's a letter from W. Scott E. H. Palmer and Thomas Moore to Governor King. And again, Book 2, Chapter, uh, chapter 10, Voyage to Terra Australis. And Flinders now left the decommissioned investigator as a storeship hulk at Port Jackson, and that's when he attempted to return to England and a passenger aboard HMS Porpoise. Just a little bit about Matthew Flinders. As you can tell, I'm a little bit excited. I get a bit passionate about Flinders and his journey uh, in um, around Australia. Now, did you know that you can listen to previous episodes of the Road Less Travel podcast by jumping onto fatcatmedia.com.au? There you can go back to the beginning or you can pick up episodes along the way of The Road Less Travelled. The first episode was Outback South Australia in the footsteps of Charles Sturt. Episode 2 was The Blue Goose Plane Wreck uh, in Perth. Uh, when World War II came to Northern in WA is our third episode. Yabby's A Recipe Cooking on the Road in a Big Submarine was Episode 4. 5 was Coolgardie Trap, the story of Verisace, the entombed gold miner. Then we went on to Lacola, Dargo, Jamis of Woods Point and the Wanagata Murders. Then uh, one of the biggest episodes we had was Under the Waters, Darlingford and Bonnie Doon, The Towns That Drowned. Uh, another popular one was out at the Yarra Valley when we went and visited Warburton, a gold mine discovery, tall timbers and a bushwalk. Part 1 and 2 of Gold River and a Secret Catalina Flying Boat Base, Bendigo to Swan Hill and then Victoria to WA and another Secret Catalina Flying Boat Base. Uh, not too far away was Discovering Ararat and the heck of a goosely spooky tour. That's where I nearly um, soiled myself. And on the trail of the of uh, the famous Australian bushwalk, uh, bushwalker, bush ranger, uh, on the Ned Kelly Trail, parts one and two. So I hope you're enjoying some of the things that we're bringing to you. Of course, recently we spoke about trout fishing and the elusive trout, catching the darn fish, the gear, the places, and a whole lot more. And, of course, this week with Matthew Flinders, and a little bit of exploration this time to the waters of Australia. We hope that you're enjoying the information that we're bringing you and the little projects that we're putting together. And no doubt, too, that you've got some stories that you would like us to share as well. So we want your feedback on the show. If you've got something, or maybe it's a product or something that you'd like reviewed, we want to hear all about it. So, uh, yes, you can speak to us to feature this show on your community radio station, for that matter, or even on your website. We'd love to talk to you. If you'd like to reach out and help us with this fiercely Australian independent podcast with sponsorship or product support, please contact us. We always love your feedback and comments. If you've got something that you think we should feature, review, visit or discuss, then please drop us an email, fatcat at iinet.net.au. That's fatcat, P-H-A-T-C-A-T. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, support us on Patreon, listen on Spotify, listen on Spotify, listen on Apple, listen on Google, iHeartRadio and SoundCloud. But most importantly, thank you so much for supporting us, a fiercely Australian independent podcast, all self-funded by myself and my husband Jeff, and that's what brings us to Fat Cat Media. That's what we're all about. That's it for this week's show. If you've liked us, please uh, give us a good review a like and a share, tell your mates about us 
And as I said, please interact with us. We'll be back next week, and we hope that you're doing it. It is tough that everyone is in lockdown at the moment with the whole COVID thing, but please keep your chins up, keep positive, keep motivated, and keep planning those next adventures, and we look forward to joining you somewhere on The Road Less Travelled. My name's Nikki Shea. Bye for now. Thanks for listening. This has been The Road Less Travelled, a podcast about travelling and camping on the road. Written and hosted by me, Nikki Shea, produced by Batcat Media. If you have enjoyed this podcast, we'd love you to leave a five-star rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Even better, please leave a review. Any comments or questions, please email fatcat at iinet.net.au and to be notified on the new episodes, make sure you subscribe to the podcast feed. We'll be back with a new episode next week.